Got to make sure that I get my eyes on. Well, after taking a three-week rest stop in Sam's awesome series on the glory of God, you know, where you're traveling along and you kind of take a break and you find a scenic overlook. And, well, we spent three weeks kind of gazing at the glory of God. But now we're back on the road again in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And we begin right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is considered by many to be the greatest sermon ever preached. It's the longest and most extensive one recorded in the Bible. And if you remember, we've kind of traveled thus far through Jesus being baptized. He was led into the desert by the Spirit and tempted by the devil for 40 days and nights. Then he comes back. He calls his first disciples. He sets out on his ministry of preaching and teaching and healing and doing signs and wonders. And now Jesus is sitting on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee amongst the grass and the flowers of the field, and he's speaking to his disciples uh, and potential followers. He's explaining to them that his kingdom's inauguration has begun and teaching them what the nature of this kingdom is all about. He's inviting people to give their hearts to him and live under his reign and rule, under his ethics and his value system. And it's really no different today. It's a choice that we all face. Who will sit on the throne of your heart? Who's the one in charge, the one in control, the one who calls the shots? Followers of Jesus proclaim they've surrendered their hearts to his reign and rule over their lives while often holding something back from him, something from going all in for him. Ask yourself this morning as we travel through further through the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus worthy to sit on your heart's throne? I've heard it said, Jesus is either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. The rabbis and teachers of the law in Jesus' day followed the pattern of religion where man attempts to conform his life to a set of rules and regulations that govern behavior, by which it's believed that you can actually earn God's acceptance and approval. This isn't what Jesus' kingdom is all about. The essence of it is revealed in his answer when asked, what was the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, it is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. What was lacking in the rabbi's teaching was a focus on love, the love of God, the kind of love that transforms an individual's heart, resulting in transformed behavior or actions and actually impacts relationships and can even impact entire communities. Jesus is turning their teachings upside down. He, he takes what the Jews have learned from their rabbis, the teachers of the law concerning behavior in the kingdom, and he's radically revealed that kingdom ethics has more to do what's in your heart than your outward behavior. It's not your behavior that needs to change, it's your heart. That's why his focus from the start of his Sermon on the Mount focuses on the kind of heart God desires to see in his kingdom followers. A heart that realizes their need for God, a heart that is meek, that is pure in heart, that is merciful and a peacemaker. Jesus reveals that wrong behavior comes from a wrong heart. He isn't attempting to negate Old Testament law. He's expanding it beyond law and action and behavior to the inner heart issues of his followers. And that's why he told them that murder actually begins in the heart and that we can murder people in our hearts through our anger, resentment, and bitterness and attitudes that actually end up killing our own heart. He says that adultery begins in the heart when we lust and covet someone else's person or possessions. He says divorce selfishly begins in the heart of one or both people in a marriage choosing in their hearts to be unfaithful. 
to put self ahead of the other, to selfishly seek out happiness outside of God's prescriptive boundaries of a faithful and committed marriage. But followers in Jesus' sermon is considered by many, or what follows in Jesus' sermon is considered by many to be the most difficult, challenging, and radical teaching of all. And as you listen to his word, you're probably going to think, that's impossible. And in one way, you'll be right. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 38. And before we jump in, let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to continue to worship you this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would, through your Spirit, awaken us spiritually to what it is that you want to say to us this morning, Lord. Clear our minds, clear our hearts, that we might hear your word and receive it with gladness, that we might allow it to plant in our hearts a seed that would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, we pray that as we're here this morning, that we would have a desire in our hearts to really have an encounter with you, to meet you here in this place, to fellowship with you in such a way that we hear your voice speaking into ours and that we would allow you to do new things in our lives and in our hearts. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's go ahead and read Matthew 5, 38 through 42. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So in these four, four short verses, we, we see four different vignettes that specifically speak to a person's natural desire for revenge, to retaliate when someone harms us. The concept of revenge is as old, old as history. For example, the Code of Hammurabi, laws from the sixth king of Babylon around 1760 B.C., is the oldest recorded set of laws in human history and is rooted firmly in the belief of an eye for an eye. Exacting a punishment that was equal to the crime. If someone damages your eye and you lose your eyesight, the offender's punishment is to be the loss of their eye. It's actually how the concept was originally phrased, an eye for an eye. And you can see it even in the laws of many Muslim countries today. I decided to research some of the most famous acts of revenge recorded in history, and I, I thought this one was both interesting and, and a little humorous. When the Canadian folk pop group Sons of Maxwell began their tour in Nebraska in 2008, they were disheartened to see from their seats in the rear of the United uh, Airlines flight that baggage handlers were heavily tossing their guitars onto the plane. Upon landing and traveling to a hotel in Omaha, the band found that while the base was intact, a $3,500 Taylor guitar had been broken. The guitar's owner, guitarist Dave Carroll, began what would be a long journey towards reimbursement for his instrument. After nine months of calling customer service and following their suggestions and filing a claim, as well as spending $1,200 to repair the guitar, Carroll's claim was finally denied by United based on several points, including that he hadn't shown the guitar to officials in Omaha. So Carroll decided that he would exact revenge by recording a series of songs which he came to be called the United Breaks Guitars Trilogy. He uploaded them onto YouTube where they went into viral and racked up more than 4 million views in less than a month. Carroll's revenge on United may have had an impact on the company's bottom line, 
Within four days of the first video's launch, United Stock dropped in value by $180 million, or 10% of its market cap. Reimbursement for a broken $3,500 guitar versus stock losses of $180 million. Not quite an eye for an eye retribution, was it? But it kind of makes you feel good, doesn't it? Where we get to see the little guy kind of take down the corporate giant. Let's start dissecting today's text. Let's take a look at each of these things that Jesus is talking about to, to gain more from it. In verse 38, he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the Old Testament passage that Jesus is addressing here is in Exodus 21, 23 through 25. It says, If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, and wound for wound. And at first glance, this sounds a little bit barbaric, doesn't it? I mean, I was kind of picturing in my mind, okay, so let's say sometime in the past that I was hanging out with a buddy and somehow he accidentally knocks out a tooth. So, you know, I'm holding my tooth here and I say, okay, man, tooth for tooth. Stand there, boom! Well, tooth teeth fall out into his hand. He says, hey, man, it was supposed to be tooth for tooth. And tooth, I stand there. I mean, can you see kind of how this would be kind of ridiculous and kind of barbaric. But in context, this is instruction that is meant for the judges of Israel on how they should administer civil justice. It's not about how followers of God should treat their fellow man. There's a law established by God for the government to set a limit, not an obligation. Punishment should fit the crime and not be excessive. And the rabbis in Jesus' day twisted it and taught to their followers as an obligation that if someone pokes your eye out, you're obligated by law to poke the offender's eye out. And you would be just and right to exact retribution in this way. Jesus says, no, you're misunderstanding it. You're getting it wrong. And Jesus continues to unpack their misunderstandings in verse 39. He says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also. And this passage has always been misinterpreted for years to say that Jesus was a pacifist. If someone was attacking you or a loved one, you should not fight back. You should just take it. But this verse has nothing to do with physical attack. It doesn't have anything to do with someone trying to physically harm or assault you or your loved ones. In the culture of that time, when a person wanted to shame or insult you, they would take the back of their hand and they would slap you on your right cheek. Jesus says, do not resist someone when they try to shame or insult you. Instead, trust God to defend your reputation. Find your security not in the opinions of man, but in God's love and who he says you are in Christ. And Jesus modeled this throughout his life. He bore up under people's insults and injustices and indignities. There's nothing that Jesus commands us to do that he didn't perfectly live out as our example. Let's go on to verse 40. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And here, once again, Jesus is referring to an Old Testament law while revealing that in his kingdom, things are now different. In Exodus 22, 26 through 27, it says, if you ever take your neighbor's coat as collateral, return it to him before sunset, for it is his only covering. It is the clothing for his body. What will he sleep in? And if he cries out to me, I will listen because I am gracious. 
So a Jewish man's wardrobe would basically consist of three things. There would be a, a loincloth, and then there would be a shirt that was maybe would go down to his knees, and then there would be a coat or a longer uh, object of clothing that would go down to his ankles. Since the outer garment was used to sleep in, Old Testament law prohibited anyone from taking it, even as a pledge for repayment. Jesus' teaching suggests that someone has taken you to court, and because you have been found to have wronged this person, the judgment is in their favor. And because you might not have any money to settle the dispute, some of your clothing is demanded, so give them your shirt as payment. But by law, he has no right to demand your coat as payment. So Jesus is saying here that because you are in the wrong, don't only do what the law requires, go above and beyond. In love, to prove your humility and desire for forgiveness and reconciliation, sacrifice more than the law requires. Give him your coat as well. But you know, I think Jesus' point here is not really the amount of clothing that you give someone to repay your debt. Because I don't think that he's suggesting that the guys of his time run around the community in their loincloths. You know, giving up your shirt and your coat. What he's saying is here that his followers and his desire to love sacrificially do so in a way that really costs you something. Verse 41, And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You know, throughout this, Jesus is really hitting on some things that would cause any Jew irritation and anger and frustration. And going the extra mile was something that was common in their day. The Jewish people were under Roman occupation. They were Israel's oppressors. And soldiers had the right under Roman military law that when marching through the countryside of Judea, that if they saw a Jew there and they were carrying a backpack, they could go up to that Jew, throw their backpack at their feet and say, carry that for me, Jew. And by Roman law, they had to do it. At that time, a Roman mile was considered to be a thousand paces. So let me ask you, how would you feel about that? Your despised occupier and oppressor is making you do something for him. He's treating you like a slave. He tosses his pack at your feet and he says, carry that for me. And then maybe he puts his hand on his sword, you know, just to show you, just try to deny my request and see what happens to you. So begrudgingly and angrily, you pick up the pack and you put it on your back and you walk for 1,000 steps and carry that pack for him. And at the end of that 1,000 steps, you uh, irritatingly and frustratingly take the pack off, toss it at his feet and go on your way. But what Jesus is saying here is, what if you chose to not only do the first mile, but in your love for God, chose to go beyond the requirements of the law and go an extra mile? And what if you did that with an attitude of kindness? To show even your enemy that you are different, that you are countercultural, that you are otherworldly, that you know that you're of another kingdom. What if you even shared with him along the journey the truth about how God loves him as you walked those miles with your persecutor and your oppressor. Now that's radical love, isn't it? Let's go on to verse 42. Give to the one who asks you and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. 
And at face value and out of context, verses in the Bible can be interpreted incorrectly. Jesus isn't suggesting that you give away all that you have to the point of you being penniless or destitute. The verb turn away clearly points to refusing someone in need should have no place in the life of his followers. You may not be able to give that person exactly what they need, but you can bless them with what you have. It may be a meal, it may be a blanket, it may be a full gas tank, it may be paying an electric bill, that also includes a kind word and good advice and a sincere prayer. This entire portion of Jesus' sermon is not some doormat philosophy for life. He's not suggesting that you allow people to walk all over you. It's not a philosophy of passivity, but it's one of action. It's not the action of retaliation or vengeance, but of act of love, choosing to bless others and do good to others, even those who wrong you in such a way that will point them to the heart of God. So how do you feel so far? Do you feel a little bit challenged? Just wait, because I believe this next part of Jesus' sermon is going to challenge you even more. So let's pick up our reading in verses 43 and 44. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, and, and if you notice, that's the second time that Jesus introduces the topic with these words. You have heard that it was said. And I believe he says that because He's not going to say that the scriptures declare. Because while the rabbis get part of it right, they added something that cannot be found anywhere in the Old Testament scriptures. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Okay, Jesus, now you're finally getting something I can get behind. Yeah, hate your enemy. Tell me more about that. Well, hold on. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Okay, I know, I just heard a collective sigh. Huh. Here Jesus is actually quoting Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. We can see clearly that while God's command is to love your neighbor, what is missing in the Old Testament law is to hate your enemy. And I'm sorry, I know that felt good for a few minutes. Yeah, I get to hate my enemy. How the rabbis had been handling it led to greater misunderstanding, and Jesus once again is trying to clear it up. There was a raging debate in their day. There was a burning question that comes from the command to love your neighbor and is, who is my neighbor? And if you remember, Jesus addressed it that in the parable of the Good Samaritan. When he was asked that question by someone, well, well, who's my neighbor? If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself, and so he begins to tell that story about the Good Samaritan. We have to take a closer look at this Old Testament text in Leviticus so that we can understand what he means by love your neighbor. So Leviticus 19, 15 through 18 will be up there. And I chose the New Living Translation because I believe in that translation, they use words and phrases that give us a full picture of what it means by love your neighbor. Do not twist justice in legal matters by favoring the poor or being partial to the rich and powerful. Always judge people fairly. Do not spread slanderous gossip among your people. Do not stand idly when your neighbor's life is threatened. I am the Lord. Do not nurse hatred in your heart for any of your relatives. Confront people directly so you will not be held guilty for their sin. 
Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against a fellow Israelite, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So according to what we see in the Old Testament law of Moses in this text, given by God to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, that your neighbors were your people, your neighbors, your relatives, a fellow Israelite. You were to love those people who are in your group, your tribe, your family, your community, those who are like you. This is how God is wanting them to live within their Jewish community with one another. But if we stop there, it would be like telling us in the church that loving our neighbor is only meant to extend to those in the church, those of our families, those who are just like us, who look like us, who think like us, who believe like us. Not even the law of Moses stops there. Because if we went on in Leviticus 19, verse 33 and 34, expands the concept of who our neighbor is. Let's go ahead and read that. When an alien resides with you in your land, and I want to stop there because I want to make sure that you know that aliens are not people from outer space. Not in this context. What other people believe is not talking about people from outer space. He's talking about immigrants. When an alien resides with you in your land, you must not oppress him. You will regard the immigrant who resides with you as the native born among you. You are to love him as yourself, for you were once an immigrant of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow, is that a message for us today in our country? Listen, I've told you before, I believe in the necessity of secure borders because I believe in the rule of law and that government's primary responsibility is the protection of its citizens. But that being said, for those of us who live under the saving grace of Christ, we should be the ones who are leading the way in loving and caring for the immigrants that are coming into our country. We should never have this, uh, this idea that these people who are, even if they're coming illegally, that's our government's fault. Even if they're coming illegally, we shouldn't see them as enemies. And we should take opportunity to love them when we get the opportunity. According to this Old Testament passage, we are to consider immigrants as native-born among you. And we're to look at them as our neighbor and that we're to love them as ourselves. In the minds of these followers sitting on a hill listening to Jesus, while receiving clarity, the debate on who their neighbor was must have continued to rage on. Okay, Jesus, so now we know that our neighbor is our fellow Jews, and it's immigrants that come into our country. But Jesus, what about the Roman soldiers? Certainly, you're not asking us to love our occupiers and our oppressors. You're not asking us to love those who persecute us and treat us so unkindly. Not that guy who just had me carry his pack for a mile and treated me like his slave. You're not asking me really to love them, are you? I want you to feel what they must have felt when they heard Jesus say, love your enemy. The Jews had lived under Rome's oppressive and abusive thumb for close to three times the amount that the United States has been in existence for over 600 years. Think of the hatred that must have existed for persecuted, abused, mistreated, religious, ethnic minorities. The question that matters is, who counts as my neighbor, Jesus? Certainly not my oppressors. Jesus picks up Leviticus 19 and expands it beyond every Jewish rabbi of his day to not just love the people in your tribe, and your family, and your group, 
but he also includes the immigrant, the alien, the stranger in your midst. But now when he includes love your enemies, Jesus is declaring that his followers love as a love that is without boundaries. You can't find love your enemies anywhere in Leviticus 19. You can't find love your enemies anywhere throughout Old Testament law. So where is Jesus coming up with this? So let's read the next two verses, verses 44 and 45. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Jesus is saying that if you are a follower of his, your love must be without boundaries just as your heavenly Father's love is without boundaries. By pointing to the weather, the fact that the sun rises and the rain falls on both the good and the bad, Jesus points to God's beautiful generosity. He's pointing to God's amazing common grace that is extended to everyone who lives. He's focusing on God's mercy. Not only does he bless those who reject him and those who do evil, but he delays his punishment for the wicked until the life to come with the desire that they too might find him and be saved. Jesus then calls out the superficial love and faith of his followers who only seek to love those of their kind. In verse 46 and 47, for if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? It's like Jesus is telling his followers, congratulations, you're nice to everyone who is nice to you. So what? By using a tax collector as an object lesson here, Jesus is not saying he has some special disdain for Jews who have held this position on behalf of the Romans. Because we know that the Pharisees accused him of being a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus knew that many of his hearers that day had a deep hatred for tax collectors and saw them as traitors and thieves and unclean men. So he uses a tax collector as an example to his followers, exposing their lack of sacrificial love for those outside their group who are different than they are. I don't know about you, but I know a whole bunch of non-Christians who are pretty cool people. They're pretty loving. They're pretty generous people who are often much kinder to people that are not like them than a lot of professing Christians I know. Jesus is indicting his followers here. How can it be that my followers can be less loving than those who reject me? More is expected of you who are saved. You've been forgiven. You've been redeemed. You've been filled with my spirit. You've been given the gifts and the fruit of the spirit. You have the living and active word of God. You have the promise of an eternal family and an eternal home with me forever. This is why it's not impossible for you to love others in this way. This is why it's not impossible for you to love others without boundaries. I've given you all the resources you need to do so. Well, now that we know who our neighbor is, we have to ask, who's our enemy? It kind of seems like a foreign thing to use that word to describe people in our life, doesn't it? It's not a word that we use very much. 
doesn't pop into our pattern of thinking towards people today. We often want to pretend, I don't, I don't have any enemies. But enemies, I think, to clarify, is a person who wishes bad upon you or who works bad against you or is in kind to you in word and deed. And Jesus here seems to be including us all. He seems to suggest that everyone has an enemy. It's the nature of living in a fallen, sinful world. Everyone has had people, past, present, and will have in the future, people who say unkind things, who ridicule and put you down and gossip and slander and falsely accuse you of things. They'll treat you poorly like you don't matter. They'll ignore you and slight you. They'll actively seem to work against you or stand in your way of success and moving forward in life. They, they seem to actively be trying to hold you back and hold you down. So now let me ask you, who's your enemy? I want you to picture them. I want you to name them. I want you to admit that they are the last person in the world that you would ever think of blessing or showing kindness towards, and yet this is what Jesus commands his followers to do. Don't hate your enemies. I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus says that those who believe in me, who follow me, who live by my kingdom ethics, will pray for those who persecute them. You know, years ago, there was a book titled The 30-Day Prayer Challenge. And the purpose of it was to pray 30 consecutive days for people that you feel like you hate and you feel like hate you. And to pray real prayers of blessing. Not the kind of prayers that you, you know, sometimes see in the Psalms when the psalmist is angry. God, smite them and knock the teeth from their mouth. You feel that way, but he's not talking about those kind of prayers. God, have a mountain fall on them or have a tornado sweep them away. And I know as you think of an enemy right now, you probably feel that way. God, I want you to crush them. That's why it's so important to start praying before you feel like it. You don't feel your way into prayer. You pray your way into right feelings. And what's so amazing about the power of prayer is what it does in your heart. You begin to notice your heart softening towards that unkind and difficult person in your life. You begin to want to move towards them and not away from them. You begin to see them with the eyes of God that even though they are unkind, they are made in the image of God, which gives them great worth. You see them as Jesus does, hurt, broken, and lost people who desperately need him. And you can now see that hurt people hurt people. So Jesus takes it a step further and he says, don't only pray for your enemies. He says, love them. Bless them. And if you'll notice in this whole thing, he doesn't say one word about how you feel about the matter. The problem with today's definition of love is it's regarded almost exclusively as a feeling. It's a sentiment. It's an emotional experience or a high. If I'm not feeling the warm fuzzies for a person or if those warm fuzzies no longer exist, 
They don't matter to me anymore. They don't deserve my love. Even worse, when that person has hurt me, not only do they not deserve my love, but they deserve my mistreatment, my ignoring of them, my cutting them out of my heart, out of my life. I think maybe that 30 days of prayer book should have been followed up by 30 acts of kindness over 30 days towards your enemy. I remember watching an episode of The Big Bang Theory one evening where it was revealed that one of the main characters, Sheldon Coopin, had a mortal enemies list. And I think he had 15, 16, 17 people on it. At the top of his list, the number one was Will Wheaton, a beloved character of the series Star Wars The Next Generation. And as a 13-year-old boy, Sheldon traveled via bus to a Comic-Con convention, and he brought with him a vintage Will Wheaton action figure in its mint box for him to sign. Will Wheaton never showed up at the convention, and Sheldon was heartbroken and never forgot that extreme disappointment and held it against him for up to that point in time in his life. And it's how Will made the number one on his mortal enemies list. Later as adults, as Will and Sheldon are actually competing against each other in some game at a local comic book store, Sheldon, with bitterness and anger rolling off his tongue, tells Will of his pain and disappointment and how devastated he was at Will's no-show at the convention. Will explains that he had full intentions of being there, but his grandma had died. Sheldon's heart immediately softened. He intentionally chose to lose the game that he was winning, the championship and the 500 prize money, as a way to bless the man who was once his number one enemy. You see, what we often don't know about our enemy's life story is we don't have a clue about their hurt and pain that has led them to be the people that they are and to be the way they do. But we can know for certain that hurt people hurt people. And the way they're acting is coming out of that hurt and pain and that brokenness. And that's the story of my dad and I. He was mentally ill. And through that mental illness, he was distant and aloof and seemed to uncare and was angry. He had to walk on eggshells around him. My dad was on my enemies list. I was bitter and angry with him. And while away to college, I gave my life to Jesus and came back home at the age of 23. And my mom told me for the first time, that at the age of 21, my dad was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. And up to that point, I never knew, but I started understanding why things were the way they were and why he acted the way he did. And my mom told me two things. The first was about his history of pain, that his father died at an early age and he was an alcoholic. And his mother, who herself was many ill, would tie my dad to a chair with ropes for an hours at a time as a way of punishing him. And I couldn't imagine because my dad never did that to me. But then she told me about a visit they had to a psychiatrist and that the doctor in a private conversation one-on-one -on -one with her told her that Tom must love you and the kids very much. And of course, not being her personal life experience, she said, why do you say that? And he responded, because he goes out to work every day to provide for you and the kids. 
men with his condition and the inner demons that he fights on a daily basis more times than not hold themselves up in their cave, in their house, hiding from all the forces of work, at work against them in the world. When I heard those things about my dad's history of pain, my heart began to break. My heart was easy, instantly tenderized. And God led me on a journey of forgiveness. And you see, my dad is still mentally, was still mentally ill and incapable of really having a healthy father-son relationship. But my heart was set free. The last three months of his life, as I went to my parents' home and helped him to shower and to dress, for the first time in 89 years, we had the most intimate of conversations alone in the master bedroom, where he shared his mistakes and his regrets and his feelings of pride for me as his son. Only three months of 89 years did I really have a father-son relationship with my dad. And yet it was a gift from God that I will cherish forever. None of what I just said erases all the hurt and pain that I experienced for so many years. But what it did was it softened my heart and it opened me up to forgive and to move towards my dad and to begin to pray for him and share Christ with him and bless him and honor him and sacrificially lay my life down for him in the final months of his life and to stand up at his funeral and honestly eulogize him. And it enabled me to erase his name from my enemies list. My dad gave his life to Jesus late in life and is now at home with the Lord. You see, your dedicated prayer is an act of service towards the difficult people in your life has the power to change you. Maybe it'll change your enemy. And quite possible, it'll change the people who are watching you and thinking, how can you be so kind to that person who treats you so poorly? But this is what is most important. Not that a, that unkind person changes. They may never change. But that through your faith and obedience, you're glorifying your Father in heaven and pointing others to Jesus as you live that out, that love without boundaries. Let's go ahead and close the sermon for this morning. There's one more misconception to clear up from this text. And let's go ahead and look at our final verse. Verse 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And boy, I know a lot of people have run with that and either tried to live that out or thrown in the towel because it's like, I ain't perfect. There isn't one day that I lived perfectly. But let me ask you to kind of uncover this, is what is the greatest thing that Jesus ever did? He died on the cross to be a substitute sacrifice for the sins of the world. Your sin, your guilt, your shame was put upon him on the cross. And he bore it perfectly before God the Father because you and I never could. That is the greatest thing that Jesus ever did. Don't you think it's interesting that not once in this great sermon on the mount, consider the greatest sermon Jesus ever preached, but not once did he ever mention the cross. But maybe we're missing something that is actually being revealed in verse 48. That his intentions for the Sermon on the Mount was to prepare people for what he would do for them on the cross, 
by ruining their confidence in their own good works. The Sermon on the Mount is meant to drive our focus to our need for a Savior. We're supposed to come to verse 48 and respond, I can't do that. There's no way I can be perfect. But Jesus' message to you and to I is, I could, and I did. And if you believe in me, I will give you my perfect righteousness in place of your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The moment you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sin, past, present, future, is forgiven and has been nailed to the cross once and for good. Your punishment has been paid, and even though you may sin and you will, Jesus has paid for every one of them in full. Your sins have already been judged, and now in God's eyes, when he looks upon you, he sees his son and declares you righteous before him. Cry out to Jesus, ask him to forgive you, tell him you believe in him, invite him into your life today, and his gift of salvation is yours. Chris, you can come on up. After a sermon about loving our enemies, I believe we all need a period of silence to do some business with God. For me, I need to ask God, do I even have an enemies list? And if I do, who's on it? You see, God doesn't only desire to remove every person from our list, but to do the kind of work in our hearts where we never even have an enemies list. God knows you've been hurt. He knows you've been wronged. And he knows exactly who the culprit is. And he knows your heart and how you've responded to that hurt and pain. And before you choose to love your enemy, you need to acknowledge who it is. So I ask you, who is on your enemy's list? Maybe someone in your home or your extended family. Maybe a past or a present friend or a neighbor. Maybe it's a former or current coworker or, or a boss. Maybe it's someone that you've experienced even in the church. Spend some time with God now. He wants to meet with you personally, one-on-one, -on -one, right now in this moment. Ask him to show you who it is. Picture that person in your mind. And ask God what steps of action he desires you to take. Pray for them. Forgive them. Bless them and do an act of kindness towards them. Go ahead and spend that time now. And then I'll come back for, in a few minutes to uh, lead us in communion.